Hi, I'm Kathy Herod. Welcome to Engage Arizona. I recently spoke with Tim Gagline about the importance of sharing and valuing the great American story. It was an interesting discussion. I encourage you to listen to it if you have not. But it inspired a broader look at American values through a biblical lens. Joseph Backholm joins me to discuss where we are in America today from a biblical worldview. Joseph is Senior Fellow for Biblical Worldview and Strategic Engagement at Family Research Council. You may know him as, quote, a six-foot-five Chinese woman, quote, in the popular video series now on YouTube, exploring the illogic of gender identity. Joseph has extensive legal, political, policy experience. He developed and launched the Colson Center for Christian Worldviews, What Would You Say? videos. I first met Joseph when he led the Family Policy Council in Washington State. But probably most importantly, Joseph and his wife, Brooke, are the parents of four children, and I think three of them may be teenagers now. That's what I thought. All right. Well, thanks for joining me, Joseph. <laughs> yes, that, that is correct, Kathy. I have three teenage daughters right now, and, and actually people told me it was going to be the death of me, and the reality is it's wonderful. And if you uh, train them early and often, uh, I have found it's a real joy to have teenagers. Amen. Well, to set the stage for our discussion, let's start with how do you define the term biblical worldview? Well, you know, I guess the first part of that, you got to define worldview. And, and I think a way to illustrate that that kind of makes sense to people is, you know, we all have sat on the beach and watched the sunrise or watched the sunset. And in some of us, that uh, causes, us to, causes us to say, what a, what a fortunate accident. While that's beautiful, I'm glad that I have evolved to see that as beautiful because I enjoy that. And others would say, isn't God great? Look at what he created, right? And it really is a function of your assumptions that you walk through life with about the nature of reality. Do you assume that the world that we live in is purposeful, that it has a creator, that there's intentionality and design behind it? Or do you assume that it's not? And and those assumptions uh, have a huge impact on how we live, right? We live in the same, we can be in the same environment, uh, same country, same culture, same legal system, same families in some cases, but we will respond very differently based on what we ultimately believe are true. So that's kind of what a worldview is. And the biblical worldview then is taking the biblical set of assumptions. God created us with a purpose. Uh, he knows what's best for us. He determines what is right and wrong. And we're accountable to him when we die, right? Those are the biblical set of assumptions um, that uh, form, broadly speaking, a biblical worldview. Well, as we see America today, we see how it's changed dramatically over the years. Challenges to our cor our country, individuals' core fundamental values. So, how does worldview affect? You know, how do we how how do we look at that from the biblical worldview standpoint? Competing worldviews. Well, yeah, I mean, in in the reality is there are so many different worldviews. If you look at the, the, the different theories about where we came from, who determines what is right and wrong, what happens when you die, what gives life meaning, if life has meaning, right? There, There's so many. There's a, a completely secularist perspective of that. Some of that turns into Gnosticism, where people just decide that because we weren't created with a purpose, nothing matters. But very practically, in the, in the political, what we describe as political debates, these questions about, you know, does my body have anything to teach me or is my, am I trapped in my body? Is my body something I can be a victim of and I have nothing to learn from it? All of that assumes if, if our existence is an accident and is without purpose, then I should be able to do whatever I want with my body because there's nobody to tell me that my body actually has an inherent purpose for my good. 
And, and so then transgenderism makes sense. It also makes sense that I can kill any other, you know, a, a pregnancy that, that, that I find to be inconvenient because the purpose of my life and my body is to be happy. It also makes sense then that I can end my life when I want to, that if I want to commoditize myself, we should legalize prostitution because there's my body exists for me. Nobody exists to tell me otherwise. If it doesn't give me joy, then I should be able to do whatever I want to it or with it to give me joy. So we see how these assumptions, uh, there's a thread through all of these quote-unquote social issues, quote-unquote political issues, and it really goes back to, do I have a purpose? Was I created for any reason, or is my life an, ex- is my life an accident? So increasingly, those of us who have a biblical worldview that our biblical values drive how we look at laws and culture— we're hearing the term Christian nationalist, that we're Christian nationalists. Well, first, you know, every what does that term even mean, I, a Christian Ooh. nationalist? Yeah, that's great. I mean, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, right? Who knows what this means? And I think there are so many of these terms. And for a long time, Kathy, you and I have been in this business for a while. Um, it, it used to be just stop legislating your morality. That that was the slur that they would use to say, oh, stop trying to push your religion on other people. Now the left is much more honest about the fact that they are also trying to legislate their morality, and they always have been. And we, frankly, are trying to legislate our morality as well, right? It's not like there's such thing as a neutral, amoral law. All law makes some kind of a statement about what is right and wrong, right and wrong, helpful and harmful, what is moral and immoral. All law does that. And so they've kind of accepted, yes, this is, uh, we're all debating which, whose morality is the best morality, which is the appropriate debate. So that, that, that slur seems to have in recent years just kind of They've given it a twist. They've rebranded it a little bit. And instead of saying, stop legislating immorality, oh, now you're just a Christian nationalist. They don't attach any actual meaning to it. It just means that if you're a Christian and you care about what's going on in public policy, you're, of course, very dangerous. And this is just a different way of saying that. So, I mean, I do think there is a line at which you are trying to, I mean, we're not running an inquisition here, right? We're not trying to use the power of the state and the and the threat of the sword to force people to convert to our faith. And so is there a line at which somebody, which I could say, well, you know, that's a totally inappropriate application of the gospel to culture, but basically no one is trying to do that. And I really think uh, it's for, the, for most purposes, an attempt to manipulate people into being silent and retreating from a battleground, so they'll, we will create a vacuum that they will be happy to fill. Well said. You've also described what's happening in America as a battle of religions. So what do you mean by um, a battle of religions that we see going on? Well, I, I think it's really helpful. You know, we, we it, it's often framed as a battle between the secularists and the religious people. And of course, the secularists get the benefit of the doubt because they are in theory not imposing their religion everyone on everyone, and we theocrats are, is how they would like to frame that debate. But I think uh, it, you don't have to look very hard to see the similarities that really secularism is just a different kind of religion. It has assumptions about meaning. There are liturgies involved. There are sacraments that they take. They have holidays. You know, we're we're coming into June here, and it's this month-long celebration of secular religious belief about the fact that my body, my choice, I can do anything I want whenever I want to, and if you disagree with that, you're a bad person. It is a fundamentally theological position, and I think my I always am trying to convince people that my body, my choice is not a political slogan. It's a statement of faith. It's basically the Apostles' Creed 
leftist secular version of that, right? It, it, it encapsulates the things that they think are ultimately and and most importantly true. And so all of the things that we have as Christians, I mean, we have a, a people that we pray to, we have patron saints in some cases that we admire and we uh, for their contributions to the world, and we have things that we hold as fundamentally true and uh, non-negotiable. They have every single one of those things, the, the secularism provides each one of those for them just from a very different perspective. And so really, it's not religion versus non-religion. It's just different kinds of religion. So as we were talking about a moment ago, it's not about who's legislating the morality. It's whose morality should be legislated. It's just not which, you know, religion versus non-religion. It's just which religious system, which religious set of beliefs is actually helpful. And that secular view of religious beliefs is intended to silence our religious viewpoints. 100%. And that's the thing that we need to understand, because whenever they lobby this, you know, oh, you're a Christian nationalist, oh, you're legislating morality, oh, you're just a Christian nationalist, all of it is man emotional manipulation intended to use our sensibilities against us, because the fact is we're not trying to use the government to force everybody to think and act like us. And we know that. So we don't like the accusation. But so the reason they accuse us of things and really it's slander is an attempt to shame us and embarrass us into silence so that we will not use the significant influence we have culturally to oppose them. They want a vacuum created where we retreat from the field because they have said enough naughty things about us that we have decided, okay, I can't take it anymore. I'm going to leave. And once we leave, they can do whatever they want. And then we all become San Francisco. So how does that play into what we see going on also on really the bat, we could say the battle for the heart of America, however we want to phrase it, that uh, the percentage of young adults, 36% of young adults, only 36% are proud to be an American, that we see the loss of yeah. values that somehow the upcoming generations have not had instilled in them the sense of, yeah. of American core values, um, even the basic knowledge of the three branches of government or fr what free enterprise is. So how, how does that competing viewpoint feed into that? Yeah, I, I see all that as evidence that government education has really done a really good job of doing what it was intended to do in, in, in so many cases. And it's tragic that you would take the greatest poverty reducing political entity that has ever existed in human history and make the beneficiaries of it hate it. We live in America right now. No one in human history has ever lived better than we do. And somehow they have managed the people who are the trust fundies of this system. They've, ma they've managed to make them hate their their inheritance and it's a tragic tragic thing the, i mean there are imperfect things about every place on earth because it's a broken world so yes it, it's tragic that that has happened um you know as an aside i think that's one of the reasons why we have to break up the public education monopoly so we stop lying to our kids and stop making them bitter about everything because that's a big part of kind of what the system is and, and progressivism just loathes gratitude because it's seen as upholding the the systemic impression if you if you're grateful for anything if you say good anything good about anything that just means that you're further encouraging the per the oppression that they perceive. And so and it just makes people bitter and angry and, and vengeful. And it's just a terrible way to live. Um, so I think the answer to that culturally, politically, and I don't even remember if this is your specific question, the answer to that is giving people choice again. So they're not 
They're, they're not mentally uh, and intellectually held hostage in these institutions that are going to brainwash them into hating one of God's greatest gifts to them. So, yeah, school choice, that wave has started. I'm so thankful for it. You guys in Arizona, of course, have been pioneers on that. But that is one of the ways we do that so that parents can take their kids and say, I want you to grow up to be grateful. I don't want you to grow up to be naive, but I want you to grow up to be grateful. I'm going to put you in a place that's going to help give you the biblical perspective about the world, which is God is good. He's given us good gifts. It's broken because of sin. We know we can't fix it here and now, but Jesus is going to come and redeem and restore all of it. Our hope is not in some political revolution that's going to systemic injustices that we perceive because that's not realistic. And if we try, if that's where our hope is, we are going to be forever depressed. And frankly, we see in the data you showed about how, how many kids actually like America corresponds closely to how many kids are just depressed about everything. They just, not only do they not like America, they don't like anything. It's just depression and loneliness and sadness. And all of that is very related. Well, in Arizona, obviously now we have the universal um, education savings accounts, empowerment scholarships. So every parent has the opportunity to get a scholarship to send their child to a school of their choice. So we see that going in conjunction with parental rights, um, with moms waking up. Uh, in Arizona, certainly we have a strong parental rights movement now. We have moms that who have their children still in the public schools who are fighting every day on what's going yeah. on in the public schools, and then many more and more pulling them out. Do you see that going on across the country as well? Oh, it totally is. I mean, yeah, this this is a national awakening and a revolution. And and honestly, one day when I'm very old, I might look back and see COVID is the best thing that ever happened to America, because it could be the moment that we had this turning point um, be, where we realized what the government education system was designed to do, and we began to fix it. And parents and moms are taking responsibility for it. And we're beginning to, to create the infrastructure so that there will be alternatives. And there's a legislative component to that. But one of the things that we that that i am always encouraging churches to do i've written a paper you can find on the internet if you're interested called why every church should start a christian school this because now that the supreme court has clarified that all of these school choice programs which will now be created they cannot discriminate on the basis of religion which means when your church and my church we start a school we can send our kids to that church school with with the tax credit program, with the voucher program, with whatever the state has created, so we can use the same dollars to have them discipled by us or discipled by the drag queen that may work in the in the school down the street, right? So that really is the option given to us, and the only thing preventing us from having it decide having our kids discipled in our church rather than by the drag queen is just the effort involved in rebuilding those institutions which we really must do it's critical work i think for me that's how you save the country we disciple the church disciples our kids in our own schools for 30 years we have a very new country moving forward because you have all of our kids that were not converted into pagans by the school down the street that we've been in the habit of sending kids to you've written on the two of the main social issues, and this is a quote, transgenderism and abortion are spiritually united by a shared desire to destroy and deface what God created and called good. We see Planned yeah. Parenthood, you, your, your column talked about how Planned Parenthood is totally weighed in on all of the, quote, gender identity stuff. So, so speak to how that's connected, abortion and, and gender identity, how that's connected and, and what people need to be aware of. 
Yeah, well, I, I hinted at that a little a, a moment ago right. when we were talking about my body, my choice. And that really is kind of the, the secular and, and in this audience, I'm probably comfortable saying the satanic thread where you say you belong to your, I, if I make the claim that I belong to myself, I determine for myself what is right and wrong, and I'm not accountable to anybody other than myself. That's the logic, my body, my choice, from which abortion comes is my purpose is to be happy. I find this pregnancy to be inconvenient and unfortunate and meaningless. Therefore, it is inconvenient and unfortunate and meaningless because I have deemed it so. And there's nobody else to tell me that I'm wrong. That exact same logic, I belong to myself. I determine for myself what is right and wrong. The purpose of my life is just happiness. And I've determined that modifying my body to be consistent with my mind is my path to happiness. And there's nobody else that I can consult that, that would tell me that was that is wrong because I was not created by anyone for a purpose. So the logic behind those issues are really closely related and that they are rooted in my body, my choice. I belong to myself. I get to decide what happens to me. And I don't think that people who believe that necessarily um, intend evil. They're starting from a set of assumptions about the nature of reality that logically leads them to that conclusion. Uh, but we as we as Christians should understand the satanic origin of this, right? We go back to Genesis chapter three, and what's the question that Satan asked Eve through that snake? Did God really say, right? That's the question. Did God really say that I knew you when I formed you in your mother's womb, that I that I already knew you? Did God really say that I created you male and female with a purpose, with a plan, and that your biology has something to communicate to you about the purpose for which you were created? Did God really say those things? And we say yes, and Satan has spent all this time since Genesis chapter 3 trying to convince us that that's not actually true. So for the parent that's listening out there and they're saying yes and amen to everything that you're saying, what are some of the practical tips that you as a dad have tried to impart to your children from a young age? What, what kind of practical advice could you have for parents? Yeah, you know, I think one of the first ones is kids have to learn that their feelings are completely unreliable is they cannot trust their heart. You have to pause every Disney movie right after the princess says, follow your heart. And you have to help them understand that that's a lie. Where do we go when we follow our heart? We go to hell. And our kids need to know that. And that's what—that's not like me trying to be alarmist. That's what scripture tells us, because the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it, right? It's broken by sin. It needs to be regenerated. Now, feelings are not bad. God gave us feelings. They are just totally unreliable. And so we have a culture telling everybody that your feelings are the guide to happiness and peace and truth. Then they go to try that experiment and they find out it's not true, which is why everybody's so unhappy. And so the first thing I think parents need to do with their little guys is stop caring so much about their feelings. Don't let your kid know, you know, don't make them think that the way they feel determines reality. And of course, we're going to love them and support them and help them, you know, emotionally grow and all of those things. But to me, you got to know where truth is rooted and it is not rooted in your feelings. It is rooted in the word of God. So if I feel something that is inconsistent with what God said is true, I go with God, not with my feelings. And if you can get your kids just in that framework very early in life, that they know that the way they feel doesn't always matter. Mom and dad care. Mom and dad love me. It's not that they're going to abuse me and neglect me, but the way I feel does not determine reality. If you can set up that framework, um, you've done a lot of the work 
of combating the lies that they're going to get from the, the world. Because when they hear the Disney princess saying, follow your heart, they're going to know why that's a problem. Amen. Well said. Okay, so I want to give you an opportunity. You have developed a game that's designed to point out the absurdity of all that's going on. So tell our listeners about Wokelandia. Well, thanks, Kathy. Wokelandia, this has been um, a fun project my brother and I did. And and in my role as a senior fellow for Biblical Worldview, I really do think it's a worldview instruction. And and what it does is it takes the rules of wokeness, and it took us a couple years to actually write these things down in, in a way that's coherent, but it's a it's a satirical game. It is funny. It's intended to be, and and you, the winner, you win the game by getting a hundred oppression points. And you all, of course, you get oppression points by having the right identity. And there's identity cards, and there's of course ways to change your identity, and by virtue signaling. And then you lose points by having the wrong identity, and by uh, committing microaggressions against your your fellow uh, competitors in the game. And what you'll find when when people play it is you recognize these are all the rules. You, you know these are the rules. And really, so much of it wasn't even creative. We just took notes on what we were watching happen every day, you know, where you get you get canceled for being a white person wearing a kimono. You get canceled for being the wrong ethnicity if, and making tacos. And apparently only Hispanic people can make tacos, so they shut down your taco truck, right? All of these silly examples of wokeness that we hear, we actually just started writing them down and and, and creating a, a um, you know a, a point value system so we can make it competitive. But what it really does is helps you see the irrationality, the silliness in many ways of this worldview that places the most important value for a person in their skin color, in their sex, in you know their claimed sexual orientation or claimed identity, whatever that is, and elevates that above things like real virtue, like courage and honesty and integrity and those things in, in part of the game. And one of the identity categories is has to do with uh, political affiliation. And the, um, the woke card is the most valuable card, having that right wokeness. There are virtue cards in the game, things like honesty and integrity, which are worth zero until you have the political identity of woke because that's the rules of the real world we live in they don't care how good you are they don't care how well you've served people they don't care how kind you are until you share their political philosophy and once you do then you get credit for being good and kind and philanthropic and all of those things and so it boils down to the most important part of the whole game is having the right political philosophy because if you don't have that Clarence Thomas knows this well, right? If you don't have the right political philosophy, they'll hate you as a minority more than they hate anybody else, uh, more than the white conservatives. So these are just kind of all the rules of wokeness. We recognize them. We try to make it uh, competitive, really in the hopes of helping people understand and get clarity about the worldview that they are living and operating in, that we are living and operating in. I highly recommend it because it, we all have succumbed to different things in the culture without realizing it at times. It's so easy when it's all around us. Well, as we close, Joseph, share, how can people follow you? Um, where, where do they find you? Well, you can, uh, you can get Wokelandia at Wokelandia.com. It's also on, on Amazon. I, I'm on Twitter at Joseph Backholm. I write at uh, World Opinions and also the WashingtonStand.com. And uh, if you type my name in on YouTube, there's a handful of places I show up there as well. And that's Joseph, B-A-C-K-H-O-L-M. 
correct? That's right. And actually, one other thing, I'm, I'm actually the host of a, a relatively new podcast, I should have mentioned this as well, called Outstanding. And it's a, it's a product of the Washington Stand, which is a product of the Family Research Council. And so wherever you get your apps or your uh, podcasts, uh, look for Outstanding, and I'd be happy to join you there uh, every week. So, well, thanks so much for taking time today. And to our listeners, as you can tell, Joseph is one of the outstanding leading voices in our culture today, speaking out from a biblical worldview. So pay attention to what he's saying. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Kathy. Great to be with you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Engage Arizona. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like and subscribe and leave us a rating or review on your preferred podcast platform. Don't forget to share with family and friends. And if you would like to learn more, please visit our website at azpolicy.org.